If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. Ladies, gentlemen, boys and girls, at six foot five, shooting guard from Pennsylvania, this is Larry Charles and the Game Dev Unchained podcast, and of course, with in a, a perfect record of 500 wins and zero losses, point guard from Huntington Beach, California, Mr. Brandon Pham. Hey, what's up everybody? Welcome to this week's episode. Uh, today, we have Steven Gurovitz. Wow, you How did you it. was perfect. That was wonderful. Nailed uh, it. We, we... You've nailed the name. Um, Stephen has never been spoken so well. <laughs> um, ladies and gentlemen, Stephen Gervis is a longtime friend of mine, and he is a sound designer slash business owner. He is the owner, and I guess you're the lead content creator for uh, 2002 Studios, correct? 2000, well, two, nowadays we're 2002 Studios Media Limited, and oh, yeah, me. I'm one of the directors. I'm not the only engineer here. We have others, and... Uh, some of them do more of the sound design than I do nowadays, but yeah, we we do um, a lot of sound design, a lot of music for video games, a lot of uh, voiceover stuff, anything to do with sound, mixed media, localization. Mm. It goes on, but yes, fingers in many pies. But um, my passion <laughs> is, is music and audio. Well, Stephen, thanks for taking some time out of your busy schedule to meet with us. Because of the time difference, it's early morning for you and very late night for us. Yeah, yeah. I, I got up, I got up very early to do this today. And you know when you have to get up early? I don't know about you, but when I know I have to get up early, even though I set my alarm, my brain is worried that I'm going to miss the alarm. So I woke <laughs> up on the hour at 1 a.m., 2 a.m., 3 a.m., 4 a.m. It's really yeah. spooky. And then yeah. got out of bed at 5 a.m. So you got no sleep, basically. More or less. Now, I'm going to be a wreck by midday today. Perfect. So. This is going to be the best podcast ever. <laughs> 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 but it's all worth it yeah so um just for the fans and listeners this week's podcast is going to be about sound design getting into sound design for games for film for movie multimedia formats but obviously this is game dev unchained so the focus is going to be primarily on games so steven yeah. first question right off the bat why in the world did you wake up one day and say i've got this cool british accent i'm going to be a sound designer <laughs> um you know, over here, just to point out, the accent isn't so cool. <laughs> <laughs> Quite a few people have it. Um, and everyone thinks an American accent is really cool. Um, <laughs> that's just the world we live in. So anyway, um, I, I come from a music background, right? Um, you know, forced to play the piano as a child. And when I say forced, I used to wrestle my mum trying not to practice. And she right. would wrestle me until I did. And um, classically trained... Uh, and yeah, my passion is music first before sound design okay. and sound editing. Um, but I've all, and I've always enjoyed gaming. Uh, I've been gaming since I was four. Mm -hmm. Um, the old arcade machines. I'm, uh, how old am I? I'm 30, 38, 38 recently, as I had to check. Um, and, uh, so I remember the old arcade machines, even though I'm not really a, 
a kid of the 70s. I was just about into the 70s, but they were still around when I was a kid. Um, my, my dad was involved in IT at uh, Barclays Bank, mm -hmm. and I remember playing Pac-Man on their servers, which I'm sure was what they were built for. <laughs> exactly. It's, yeah, they had the, it, it was a company, I don't know if they still exist, DEC. DEC, but they made like big mainframe stuff, and mm -hmm. um, and their their machines had Pac-Man and um, uh, Centipede mm -hmm. and a, mm -hmm. and and, and, right. and like those kind of games on it. So um, yeah, so I've been playing games ever since, and they've always taken my imagination. So uh, it was a logical thing to say, look, yeah, I would like to write music for movies and whatnot, but that's a pretty congested area. Um, wh why don't I, you know, go after the new media? And, and moving to gaming. And then, obviously, if you're going to be involved with making music for games, uh, you obviously get involved in sound design as well, mm -hmm. especially on a smaller production games, which is what I've always been involved with. I, I'm not going to sit here and claim to be involved in AAA games uh, with huge scores. There's very, very few of those games around. And again, I'm not trying to chase after something with another 100,000 composers. Instead, I work and have relationships with a number of small developers, small publishers, and we're pumping out lots of different games at once, which actually is really cool because you, you end up writing lots of different stuff. Uh, but th they won't come to you and say, I want music, and then I'll go to someone else wanting sound design. Mm -hmm. They'll want the whole package. Mm -hmm. so, so let me so ask you this. How many games do you say you have a credit on right now? Oh, good. Well, because we do a lot of casual games. and yeah, that counts you know, I know no one developer I work with. I think we knock out like five to eight games a month. A eight month. Oh, man. A month. They're small games, but they're but but they're fun. Um, yeah. And uh, and you know they don't have hours of music in because they're HTML5, so they've got to be kept small. But so they might only have a minute to two minutes worth of music in. But yeah. each one has to be very different. So one might be a an Italian restaurant game, and the next one is. Uh, sort of Lord of the Rings game. So you're writing little pastiche bits of music all the time in completely different styles, which is it's great because, in fact, I'm getting paid to hone in on my writing skills, right. if you know what I mean. Um, so I don't know. There must be at least 40 to 60 games out there, some of them very small, some of them a lot more meaty. Um, where I've contributed sound and uh, music to either personally or my team have. You're yeah. basically telling us your your resume is uh, Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite. Can't but, even yeah. imagine. But you've been in the industry for a while now. Like, how long has it been? Oh goodness, I don't know. Uh, I've been in the sound industry. I, I I've never really had another job. So I've been in the sound industry since. Uh, I was 15, 16, sort of starting as an amateur. But in terms of getting paid for it, I guess I started getting paid for it from around 18, 19 onwards. When I, when I went to university, the university course I was on was called Commercial Music. Um, and their, their, their entire approach was, you enter the industry now. Mm -hmm. In fact, I remember them doing a whole speech um, saying that if you leave the first, which is like you know, the best type of degree you can get, they said you failed. Mm -hmm. And everyone looked at them with like, you know, dumbfounded faces. And their point was, no, no, you should be too busy uh, mm -hmm. doing stuff in the real world 
to get best top marks in all your you know reports and this that and the other it says really you're here to start in the industry now the advantage you have is our facilities and the fact you've got a bunch of mentors who can catch you when it all goes wrong which everyone outside which outside of the course doesn't have and yeah sure you should try to get your degree and not flop you know but it's uh and if we can take the work you're doing outside and use it inside the degree even better um but so that so yeah i've been in industry from then doing a mixture of music production like you know actual songs we do that as well um um, and then slowly but surely meeting people around the world by the internet like larry um and building relationships and making games for their uh, making music for their games yeah so it's been you know quite a few years some years are more active than others but i'd say the last five years have been consistently active what games would you say have been your favorite to work on thus far? Because it sounds like you've worked on a, a plethora. Is it you like mobile games? You like HTML5? Is there a certain genre that you're most interested in? There were certain games where the music seems, you know, either because the, the artwork, mm-hmm. the setting of the game, it doesn't matter if it's a big, massive game or a tiny game. There are certain games where you just, you know, the the setting is more obvious it speaks to you and it lets you go into you know it gives you a real strong theme to work off mm-hmm. um I'll give you two very contrasting examples one's a more meaty game and one actually was meaty because it was a collection of html5 games with a strong theme mm-hmm. so one game is called the few which is a recreation of the uh, battle of britain mm-hmm. and that's that's a well, what is that a proper game it has a proper campaign and all the rest of it um, and so there's many different pieces of music I had to write for that. And we're currently working on a sequel where I hope to do a lot more. Um, and as an artist, obviously it's a lot more meaty to get, you know, to get into. And also it's kind of cool because I've always loved war films. And uh, actually it's very interesting with the development of that. I don't know if you want me to sort of talk about that in a bit more in, in depth. The few more. Yeah, good idea. <laughs> so um, that's Larry sending me a message. Um, but it's... Um, uh, uh, we could do a whole lot of gags on that, couldn't we? And look at different <laughs> movies. Uh, um, where well, a few more dare. Um, so, but yeah, um, I, but actually, the eagle, you know, where eagles dare and all that kind of stuff. I loved all those kind of war movies. Um, so writing that kind of stuff was really, really cool. And actually, there was a bit of an interesting discussion between me and my colleagues on the development side because the the artwork is a little bit cartoony, um, and obviously, it's set in Britain. Um, and they wanted a sort of Hans Zimmer like you know score that he would do for an American war movie, mm-hmm. and I was mm-hmm. like, "But well, the British aren't like that. We don't have the lone trumpet and the. It's all more. It's more like plucky. The British mm-hmm. have this mental image of themselves of you know we win through a bit of luck and at the last minute type thing. Right. Yeah. Whereas uh, you know the, the, you have the big American drum corps and and you have the lone trumpet and there's a sort of vast grandness to everything. Even though I guess when it comes to warfare, it's always chaotic for everyone involved. But the point is, yes. So if you listen to any British music on a British war film, mm-hmm. it's actually yeah, it's that kind of stuff. And so they they thought that was a bit too twee. So that was interesting because we had a sort of you know we had to find a middle ground mm-hmm. so that was cool and then the other thing i did recently which i really enjoyed was um we we were commissioned to do some music for some html5 games a package of games mm-hmm. for something to do with an american college or or, or it's american college themed I'm, I'm not too sure who the end customer was mm-hmm. um and we went for 
like Wreck It Ralph. Oh, nice. stuff. Really, really retro because all yeah. the games pixel art. Um, and and that was just really fun because it allowed us to sort of. Uh, I didn't like do literal eight bit or sixteen bit tunes. I didn't limit myself to the exact number of notes and things that you'd get out of a Commodore or something like that. But it was heavily influenced by and and yeah, I would say it was a mixture of inspired um uh you know uh music from the eight bit, sixteen bit era, um and a sort of a mixture of I don't know, Beverly Hills Cop, nineteen eighties style music all combined together. And that was really, really fun as well. Uh, so yeah, there's no specific thing. That kind of stuff. That was the first tunes I ever sequenced. <laughs> yeah, did it all by ear and put it into the sequencer and all the rest of it. So you know, those are two examples of two meaty projects where the actual genre of the music's are completely different, mm-hmm. but because they both have a very strong thematic uh, presence, it, it helps focus me and it gives me a very real challenge. The worst thing is a, a puzzle game. Mm. And it's like, can you have the music? To it? And you go, yeah, but what is there a theme? Is there a narrative? And we had one recently where there was a theme and a narrative, but the narrative changed so much over the over the game. Well, there was no real narrative, but the, the it was a puzzle game, and you have backgrounds. But the background art changed so much. One minute you had rainbows and clouds, and the next minute it's in a creepy forest. Thing is, it was an HTML5 game, so you can only really have one tune because there mm-hmm. wasn't enough memory capacity. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, we, so that was just what I call. A moment of musical blandness, because <laughs> it just had to, you know, keep people calm, make them feel they're still doing a puzzle game. Yeah. But I guess it could have been pretty generic. So uh, I have a question, uh, kind of going back to the beginning of your career. Like, when when did exactly uh, when did you know that gaming uh, has uh, game development was a thing? Did you always had an idea, or was it during college where you? you found out that you can actually work in in the game industry and not just be a fan of it uh i i i've i'm not your normal person <laughs> in many ways um yeah. I, I was ready to leave school at the age of 12 yeah i ready i i, I was big into the amiga community don't know if you guys know the amiga computer yeah um uh, and um i've seen and pictures I was, of it why don't you explain of it? Explain it a little bit of what that is. It's an, it's the, the Amiga is an American computer, yeah. by, um, and it was being produced at the time by Commodore, yeah. and it was the world's first multi multimedia and multitasking computer. Many years ahead of itself, it was mm-hmm. released. I mean, at a time where Macs were black and white mm-hmm. and couldn't really do much, but they had a nice GUI, but you know, and mm-hmm. cost what well, pounds to say two thousand pounds for a classic. Or something like that. Uh, you had Amigas that were like three to four hundred pounds, had color palettes of four thousand and ninety six colors, could multitask, had proper preemptive multitasking, had four four channel stereo sound, um, had separate chipsets for the graphics and everything, which helped with the multitasking. They were really amazing computers, um, um, and. I used one like many kids in the UK because they were more successful out of America than in. Um, uh, but they, they were very successful in the uh, TV industry and the film industry in America, especially mm-hmm. with a product called Video Toaster. Um, but yeah, I obviously I use them to play games like everyone else, but I also use them 
like we said, this is what kids today don't do with their consoles or their tablets. Mm-hmm. Is it was it was a computer. It just you know. It just happened to play games really well. And actually, this is before Nintendo and Sega had really taken off outside Japan. Uh, uh, the UK and Europe was still very much home computer-based. So when I wasn't playing games, you're mucking around with art programs and animation programs and mm-hmm. music programs and and creating stuff mm-hmm. um, and sharing stuff. Um, there was no internet, but actually mm-hmm. it was a lot more viral and creative even today in some ways. Okay, so... Um, being part of that scene meant that that everyone felt a bit like what you know YouTube supposedly liberated people. It has in terms of delivery platforms and like what we're doing now, being able to make podcasts. Yep. But way back then, we were doing a lot of the creative, the actual production stuff. Um, so you, everyone kind of felt they were in the industry anyway because mm-hmm. everyone was having a go at doing it. And then some people managed to get their game published or managed to get their piece of artwork or video or music uh, shared via what was called then public domain. Um, and so I was a young kid, but I was on the periphery of this scene, should we say, already starting to make stuff happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, this bit's kind of key, I entered a competition. Uh-oh. Mm. to write and record a piece of music for what was then the world's largest Amiga magazine. It had a circulation of 200,000 copies wow. worldwide. No magazine, like computer magazine, has that nowadays because obviously we all read our stuff online. But yeah. that was a big worldwide thing. And they had a big worldwide competition. And then at the sort of, I think it was one of the big um, gaming events in central London, mm-hmm. like one of the big shows, uh, they declared the winner. And it was me. Oh. That that really suddenly made me think. You know, it's great when you're if you're lucky enough to have a supportive mum and dad and friends. Uh, but you know, in the back of your mind, you know they might be a little bit biased. Uh, but to suddenly have outsiders and they had like some top composers and people involved in the judging process oh. to have them turn around and say, "We value what you're doing." Suddenly made me think. Okay, maybe I should take this really seriously now. Yeah. Maybe this actually could be a career. Was this and before college or during college? When this is this is when I was fifteen. When oh man, okay, yeah. so it's a calling card, yeah, yeah. So at that point, I then said, well, maybe I should still do a proper degree, like economics and politics or something like that, because I also like writing and journalism, and that would have been what I went into if I didn't go into the creative arts, yeah. and. uh and then I said, maybe I should go somewhere with a good music department so I can at least use their facilities. But then I was just encouraged by my family, who are very academic. So, you know, you know they, they're they academic, but not atypical, right? So they just, you know, wanted me to be happy and succeed or whatever I want to do. That's the most important thing. Um, they said, well, what, look, why didn't you just go for this? Mm-hmm. So then I found this commercial music course, which seemed to be perfect because it wasn't a music degree because music degrees are pretty useless outside the world of music. I'm not even too sure they're useful inside the world of music because <laughs> at the end of the day, like sports people, you'll get picked for an orchestra or something based upon your ability, not on your degree. And right. you can't even use a music degree to teach because you have to get a separate degree for teaching. So, but the, I found a proper degree, proper BA honors, and it included 30% business and mm. music law, um, some sociology, mm. um, and uh, and yeah. So then, I, as I said, that's that's what I did. And the moment I started doing that, I in fact was in the industry. I was in the music industry, and from mm. there, I want to make music. I want to work with filmmakers. I want to work with game makers, and I want to you know cover all these bases. 
So I'd like to ask something that some of the users may be interested in knowing about right now, which is if I were going to work for Steven Gervitz at 2002 Studios, do I need a degree in audio asset production or music theory or any sort of college degree? Like, does that help me get in the door with you? No, not really. I mean, if you're an alumni of the course I went on, obviously I'll take that very seriously because I have a lot of respect for that course. But uh, I have to be honest. And then I think this is actually really relevant because um, the amount of debt, especially in the USA, people go into. And in, in, in the, and just to explain it to your listeners, um, the way that education is funded between our two nations is quite different. So <laughs> you guys have debt. It really is debt. I, you have to pay that back. Yeah. And, and, and a lot of families go into second and third mortgages because uh, you, you, you have to get that money up front. In the UK, students also go into debt. And I don't, it's not pretend debt either, but there are some changes, which is, in effect, they get the money up front from the government. Ah. Um, no one has to mortgage their house. Mm. Um, and you pay it back over many years if you're earning over a certain threshold. If you're earning under that threshold, you don't have to pay it back. And I think after after 20-odd years, whatever's there just gets wiped to slate. Mm. Just get oh. wiped off. It's got to hold on yes, for 30 years. Yes, you guys are like, oh. so, so, so Going so hiding in 30 years. So, <laughs> I mean, that used to be completely free at the point with no debt. Um, but over the last 10 years, it's moved more and more to this kind of halfway house debt system, but where the government still funds the money and, and, and there are lots of protections in terms of having to pay it back. Um, but either way, it's still debt and it's still spending. And it doesn't matter if it's taxpayer funding or, or not. You have to look at the value in it. And um, there are millions of universities that create music tech courses um, because they know it attracts students. Because they're businesses at the end of the day. Um, And you've got to go, well, hold on a minute. How many recording engineer jobs are there? Let's remember, UK is one of the leading economies in music. You've got, so is the US. And you've got Nashville, you've got New York, you've got LA. But but probably pro rata for the size of the population, the UK kicks, you know, well above its weight. Mm. Um, you know, some massive percentage of the world's music consumed is, is British in some way or another. But actually, if you look at the number of studios there are and the number of actual jobs of engineers, it's got to be under 300. It's mm-hmm. got to be. So obviously there's more jobs for engineers in filmmaking, uh, TV production, and in games. But even then, in terms of actual regular paid jobs... Uh, you guys have worked at AAA Studios, and a lot of them in USA. The UK's also had a history of uh, setting up studios and and having investment here. Um, but you know, how many big games are there released a year? And I'm talking about like big franchise games. I I, I I'm just guesstimating here, but twenty, twenty. No, I think like ten. and it's all at Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> no, but maybe it's twenty across the year if you include the sports franchises. Well, most of them, if you include the sports franchises, maybe, but even then, right? Like January, a bit high. What yeah. big game came out in January? Yeah, I would no, say exactly. one, I mean, one a month. Yeah, like we're, and then in December, maybe three or something. Yeah, yeah so it's very, it's very, so, so you work it backwards. You work mm-hmm. it backwards. I mean, obviously, the actual development teams are quite big, uh, um, but when it comes to the audio side, yeah, a game yeah. you might have anywhere between. Three and ten people, right? Okay. Yeah. 
So you've got all these kids going to college, going into massive debt. And actually, my view is it'd be much better if they just went back to the, well, I, I'll call it the meager culture days. Mm. Everyone just go out, out there and start doing it. Mm. Yeah. And, 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 and you'll make lots of mistakes, I'm sure. But you'll, it, it, it'll be a, a cheaper mistake than £50,000 of debt. And you'll meet people and, and you'll build relationships. And as their careers grow, your career will grow with them or vice versa. And just create content and get it out there. Because actually, going back to your core question, I don't care about their education. I care about what they've been doing. Mm-hmm. I want to see their portfolio. Yeah. That's what it comes down to for me. And, I, you know, I, I think this happens more and more in, gen- in, in every line of work, by the way. I've got friends in regular jobs, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And, and obviously they do look at people's CV and their education, but they're much more interested about what they've been doing um, because everyone's got a degree now. So how can you tell the difference between everyone? Mm-hmm. Right. So I think this is a general issue. It's not just about us, but because we are in a vocational creative industry, of, you know, Brandon creates 3D environments. I really don't care. What what grades he got, or what's the thing? All you guys Americans compare. What's the, the some score? Yeah, which you know we don't have that here. So you will compare score. I don't care. I, I don't care if he's got a high score or a low score. I want to see. I just want to show me an environment. Yeah, yeah, I like that. You did that. Yeah, I did that. Great. Uh, you can do that for me as well. Then thank you very yeah. much. Job done. Pretty much. Yeah. Well, then what? How about the opposite side of that question then? Are there any schools, and I know you've already shouted out your own alma mater and the program you originally started in. Are there any other <laughs> schools that you say, hey, you know what? I know these guys do a quality job. I would potentially look at somebody who came from this type of place. Well, obviously, in America, there's Berkeley. Mm-hmm. And I've worked with some of the students from Berkeley. But again, I have to say, I'm trying to not to be too cynical, but all these places are under pressure financially. And mm-hmm. all of them have gone down the route of what I call bums on seats economics. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Can you uh, can you break that down for us? Well, they, well, they just want to get people in because it pays the bills. Yeah. They are businesses. Yeah, yeah. Pumps yeah. <laughs> on seats. <laughs> yeah. I think I saw some you know, of when those I kids. Did my <laughs> course, when I did my course, there were forty people in the year, and so you knew the lecturers, and the lecturers knew you, and they became friends. And you know, I've got some actually very senior people in the music industry who I consider friends or at least associates I can reach out to because they knew who I was. Now the same course might have eighty, a hundred people. So yeah. the lecturers have no idea who anyone is because they're just faces, yeah? Um, and I'm sure that's happened at other illustrious places as well. But Berkeley is known for being really cool. Obviously, you've got uh, Juilliard in New York. Mm-hmm. And th- and these places, obviously, are traditionally are about traditional music performance and whatnot, but they do a lot of them now have crossover courses. And because mm-hmm. of their credibility, they're like the music version of Harvard and whatnot, um, in theory the lecturers you're meeting and working with are not just people who didn't make it and then took up lecturing, if you know what I mean. They're mm-hmm. all people who are have made it, are still making it. So you're meeting with, you know, what's the value of going there? Well, hopefully you learn something, mm-hmm. but you're leaving with your little black book of contacts. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's really, in my, in my view is, is worth a lot. Um, uh, so in the UK, there's the commercial music course at Westminster. There's Royal Academy of Music, I think, still have a commercial course. There's some other places as well. There's some, but, you know, some of the big commercial businesses set up as colleges, um, maybe I'd steer clear from because they are very <laughs> commercial. Um, and, 
but this is very specifically I'm talking about the audio side and music and composition. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of like, there are some places that, that obviously there's some universities in the UK that that offer some game design courses and all of this. And and let's be honest, look, if you're going through game design and coding, you you can self teach yourself a lot. But there's no harm in actually being taught by someone. I think the issue is also, by the way, if you're going to go for education. Degrees, at least in the UK, have to be three years to four years long, mm-hmm. unless you do one that skips the holidays and they can be compressed into two years. And some universities offer that, okay, because actually it's, it's cheaper for everyone. Um, but anyway, uh, the, the, the degrees have to be that long because they also have to throw in sociology and some other bits for it to be a degree. Mm-hmm. And I assume something similar in America, because you might go and do a degree in game design. But obviously in America, you have the major minor system anyway, which we don't really have. So so for it to be a degree, you have to do so many years of study, which is the thing you love, plus philosophy and history and all this other stuff. And it's by getting all your points for all the modules that you get a degree. Right. That's the general gist of it. Yeah. OK. Yeah. But in reality... I'm not saying you can learn everything you need for life in nine months, but in reality, could you learn the core parts of coding in an intensive nine month course? And then the rest of it, you do on the job or you self teach. Yeah. Mm. Same with learning your way around a 3D environment program. Mm. So, again, do you need a degree? You might need an education, but do you need a degree? Will the letters, will the degree get you a job? I don't think so. But you might still need the education. So better, you just pay $8,000 or £8,000 and do a nine-month intensive, but you're just learning. It's very vocational. Mm-hmm. And then you go, and then after that, you, you go get an internship or you set up your own business, whatever it is, and you work your way up. Yeah. Okay? That would be, that for me is a better halfway house rather <laughs> than going into all the thousands of pounds of debt. Yeah, I personally don't even know where my diploma is anymore. <laughs> if anyone were to ask... I wouldn't even know where to get it. So I could have practically lied <laughs> this whole time and it would have made a yeah. difference. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, prove to us you got the degree. Uh, uh, yeah. I guess I'll my, call. Go to my LinkedIn. Underneath yeah. my picture, it says where I went to school, okay? okay. All right. Yeah. yeah. If it's on LinkedIn, it must be true. I mean, it's yeah. like Wikipedia, right? Yeah. Wow, Larry, you uh, have a, a doctorate in uh, <laughs> rocket science. Dude, one of these days, yes, man. Yes, I do. I'm going to go fuck it mode (laughs) and just list all these degrees on my thing and see who calls me out on it. (laughs) I mean, um, I mean, look, look, I mean, this is mainly you interviewing me, but I mean, what's your feelings on it? I mean, you've worked in industry for quite a few years now. You've both, uh, well, actually, I don't, you've come through college and I'm sure uh, the courses you're on were very good and I'm sure they equipped you. But with hindsight, could you have learned the core stuff that you didn't know and really needed in less time and hence got a lot less debt? And also, I, you would have then entered the industry younger. So even if you'd started really at the bottom, earning very little or maybe even nothing as, a, as an unpaid intern, actually, you, you probably would have progressed faster because you'd already be in the system. Yeah. yeah. I'd essentially have had a three years head start. Mm-hmm. But I will say this. Uh, I, I think I'm always going to be on the fence on this because I can see both sides. I can definitely see someone with the right drive you know, and a no BS attitude or someone who doesn't make excuses for every little shortcoming could sit down and say, okay, what's a game plan that I can execute to get in and through the game industry. And then I can also see a student paying for art school, going to art school and then becoming successful that way, because there are some things that I did like about art school, which was facilities, you know, uh, on-campus resources and networking opportunities and relationship building 
that has helped, you know, once I did get through the industry, like even today at work, there was someone I went to college with who was interviewing, you know, and I can't tell you how many times I've gone to a different studio and seen people that knew of me or I worked with before from school, you know. But that's also because you went to a college of five we call that, should we say, is connected to the industry. It's in the hub. But there must be tons of like what, uh, Me Too courses up and down the country yeah. in oh, bits yeah. of America where there is yeah. no industry. And like I said, these are lecturers that never really made it. Yeah. They just, you know, that, and I, so oh, no, you're not leaving with any connections. Let me jump back in then. You're exactly right. Because for me, it came down to two schools, the Art Institute of Philadelphia or the Art Institute of Orange County. Uh, I was living in Pennsylvania, but I said, man, I don't know any game companies out here. I have no idea how they plan on like placing me or bringing professionals to the campus or, you know, some of the things that I would have looked forward to that I did get when I went to the Art Institute of Orange County, you know, being almost in the heart of video game development mecca of California. So, yeah. 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 And I think that's key. And I think uh, I don't know how it works in, in America, but uh, kids here, they do their A-levels, which are like their final form of examination um, before they leave sure, regular like school. thesis or final project, uh, something like that. Then the, these are like the final exams before they okay. go to university. And, um, and if they don't, if they don't get the grades for the university they wanted to get in to, um, they go through a thing called clearing. And what clearing is, is them essentially going online, maybe with the support of their school to find other courses anywhere where they can go to university. So they can still go to university. Mm. Um, and my question is, but, but, hold on. Are, what, are you just trying to go to university so you can say you've been to university? Uh, mm. Because they end up on on any old course anywhere, and it doesn't. And you know, and these the, the fact these courses have unfilled spaces talk you know says a lot anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, 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 but you know, it's a very expensive expensive process just to go on any old course just to say I've been to university. Um, yeah. yeah, you've really got to be strategic and say if I can't get into that place. I either reapply next year and the year after, mm-hmm. or I'm just going to get on with it. But you know, I'll I'll self-teach. I go on courses. I'll learn the core skills. I'll try and do an unpaid internship. I'll, mm-hmm. you know, hang around with people in the right bars. I'll find some other young people in my situation. I'll find a sound guy. I'll find a an artist. And guess what? We'll start making games together. Mm-hmm. Let's yeah. just do it. I'm all for that attitude, and I think Game Dev Unchained, the podcast, promotes that as well. But I will say, you know, we're for whatever way you choose to get into the industry, so long as you maintain, you know, and have some self-respect. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know. It's It may be dangerous to even say that. So I won't represent Game Dev Unchained in saying that, but we, we want people to go out into the industry and understand that, you know, put yourself first and make sure that you're always, you know, you're not letting big business take advantage of you. That I'll just leave it at that, you know? Yeah. yeah. Just be smart. Yeah. Connect with good people you as soon as possible. <laughs> yeah. You are the talent. You are yeah, the talent. Yeah, with internships, be, be careful. I mean, um, we have interns here, uh, but we have a very simple rule, which is that if we don't pay them, we can't treat them like employees. Oh. Mm. Right, wow. you've got too many companies that, that that essentially say, right, you're an intern, you're unpaid. Maybe we'll pay your travel expenses. Maybe we won't. But you have to come nine to five. Mm-hmm. You, you know, you have to act like an employee. And um, if you don't come, or if you take a day off, or whatever it may be, we'll fire you. Mm-hmm. Well, how can you fire someone you haven't hired? Mm-hmm. Yeah, 
it, it, to me, it's not logical. So we'll say to people, right, here's the deal. We want to get you to a point where you're working with us as a paid freelance or whatever it may be, but um, that might take three months. It might take six months. It will never take years. We don't do that. Um, if, if it's not working after so many months, we'll just cut them loose because we're wasting their time and ours. Yeah, but yeah. the point is, if there's days they don't want to come in, obviously they should tell us out of courtesy, but that's yeah. fine. They tell us they don't come in, maybe because they're doing a paid job somewhere else. Maybe they just don't want to. That's absolutely fine. Um, but in our industry, there is too much. Uh, um, we, you know, there's so many people desperate to get into it. It's like acting. It's like filmmaking. How many people on set are just, you know, holding clipboards to look important and really earn and earn nothing, or near to nothing, and all the rest of it, right? But but the industry knows there's more people trying to get into it than there are jobs, and they they leverage that to get a lot of cheap and slave labor. Yeah, it sucks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you guys are like. <laughs> decades ahead of us over there these are like the size of experience (laughs) well honestly i feel like our businesses have the opportunity to be the same way they just choose not to yeah well i mean this kind of goes into my next question right the differences between the uk and us so larry and i obviously know more about how the us companies are um and uh you know is there cultural differences of how developers are treated over there um in korea where we're superstars in u.s we're kind of like this niche like we're, we're we're along the borders of a person playing a game and making the game no one the, like the general public doesn't know the difference so yeah. we we're still like growing up over here is the uk you know more respectable at least knowing what a game developer does or, or is it I'll, I'll more give the you, same? I, I i don't think so and i'll give you a good example <laughs> yeah. what's the i mean when i say the biggest game it depends how you value it but in terms of console triple a games what's like the biggest franchise out there gta probably yeah gta gta right. is the biggest Exactly. And um, where's that made? Depends. <laughs> well, the main one is over there, right? Isn't it? It's in Scotland. Yeah. Scotland, yeah. Yeah. In, it's in, in the north of the UK. Okay. And um, and obviously the, the houses and whatnot in the New York office get all the, the headlines and, and obviously they're a big creative force and they're, they're rather important. But a lot of the work's done Scotland, I think they've got another studio in Leeds. Right. Um, you'd think some of the guys from there would be rock stars. You'd yeah. think even the houses themselves, apart from the fact that gamers know who they are, yeah, would be uh, people who are um, talked about and uh, when I say chased, I don't mean paparazzi chased, but I mean courted. By a UK media to yeah. to to represent their studios and talk about the great success of British gaming, yeah, it doesn't really happen. Right, it doesn't really happen now. Either that's because the British media, a bit like you're saying, it's a cultural thing. Actually, no one cares. Mm-hmm. No one's interested. Um, or it's because the studios themselves don't want to talk to them. Mm-hmm. But I think ultimately, it's probably more to do with the former, which is um, no one quite understands yet who makes games what yeah. these people are that they're not just nerd gamers whatever stereotype you want to put there which i think is what you were talking about brandon mm-hmm. um and uh but you know these guys are gods mm-hmm. and they're british predominantly mm-hmm. 
or their foreign talent working at a British company. Right. Um, and not even in where you'd think. Like, the Scottish studio is, is you know, it's not even in one of the major cities in Scotland, let mm. alone in uh, down in London or in Liverpool, where the, traditionally there was a big setup with Sony Worldwide Studios and things like that. Um, it's, it's uh, it, you know, so it's a real success story in, in many ways because it shows you it can be done anywhere. Yeah. Um, but no one really talks about no them. Talks no one about them. makes a big thing about them. Um, the fact um, that the, the UK, you know, obviously studios open and close and in the last few years there was a few closures. But traditionally in Liverpool there was a big hotbed of talent based around the Sony operation because they bought Psygnosis all those years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I think you've got some Microsoft studios down in London. But no, there's no real... You, you'll get the odd politician talking about it, but... I'll give you a very good example of why of where gaming is. The film industry in the UK is doing really well right now. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, films might be funded by US studios, even though those US studios might be funded by the Chinese. Um, but actually, a huge amount of the films you watch, however American centric they are, a huge amount of them are filmed in and around London. Mm-hmm. Okay. One, it might be the theme when we have certain sets and whatever, or bits of forest that you don't have. But two, even if they're in studios, whether it be Batman or Harry Potter or whatever it may be, it's all done over here. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons is the skill base. Um, you know, all you know, the original Star Wars films were done over here, and the new ones all being done over here. So one, it's the skill base. But two, in the last ten years, the government has really aggressively done a very interesting tax regime for film. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and and so you know, essentially, film flops. Um, uh, investors get a lot of their money back, or they get tax rebates, whatever it may be. So they've made it very attractive. Mm-hmm. And the games industry has had to fight and fight and fight to get anything near that. And I think only in the last year or so, the government has put together a scheme. I'm not even too sure the scheme has started yet. I don't know. I'd have to check. But the point is, it lags massively behind. Mm-hmm. Um, when you, when really, I mean, I'm not saying you shouldn't be supporting film. Film's a great industry, but um, actually, there must be more jobs potentially in gaming, because especially for bigger games, the number of people there are, um, and obviously, it's the platform of the future, or it's the medium of the future. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you'd think they'd be fast tracking that, mm-hmm. but it was, it was, uh, you know, really hard to convince government that this is a real industry, and that yeah. there's. Thousands of people involved, and actually, the UK happened to be one of the best at it. A bit like the music industry, again, they punch above their weight. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 actually, it's quite unique to have such a strong software industry when there's no strong hardware industry. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. So yeah. America traditionally had Atari, now has uh, Microsoft and and, and Xbox. Um, and and that and, and obviously it has a lot of fingers and pies in the PC industry. What with uh, Microsoft, Windows, and lots of other things. Japan, which Japan we know what they have, and Sony and, and Nintendo. Um, and the UK used to have a hardware industry uh, with the old eight-bit computers, and it's that heritage which has helped create the base you've got now. And actually, a lot of the developers we're talking about, GTA and other people, they made a lot of their, they, you know, they they were part of that Amiga scene we were talking about. You know mm-hmm. how I was saying that Amiga was like the YouTube, but not in terms of distribution, but in terms of being able to make everyone be able to make stuff, mm-hmm. right? So a lot of the core developers that you see now in their 40s and 50s who have any British background, they all started with the Amiga. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, um, so that whole platform created an industry, but the UK is kept in the game despite not having a, a, a any real big hardware players. Mm-hmm. It's all come from that creative stuff. Well, thanks to the Amiga for bringing us Steven Gurevitz uh, <laughs> and GTA and GTA. And I'm sure look, you look at a ton of games um, or developers making games now, and you look at their gaming heritage. And if they've got any British background, they probably play were making games on the Amiga or the, or the Spectrum. Right. You look at the Rare collection that Microsoft released recently on the Xbox One. You know the Rare collection that was just released. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's, so the, the, you know, it's their heritage goes back to those days and. Um, yeah, you look at any developer in their 40s or 50s, and that's where they started off if they're British. So how accessible when they were cheap, and they were computers. They weren't consoles. If we yeah. had a console-only culture, yeah, we probably would never have had an industry. So Larry uh, and I have often talked about developers in their 40s and 50s, <laughs> but never <laughs> past their 50s. Like, how how's that over there? Like... Are developers safer in any reason, or like, do you see developers retiring as game developers, or what's I, what's that I, like I, over there? I probably can't answer that so well because it's not like I know all these different people so, like personally. Yeah. But I would say it's still a bit too early to know because they're forty, yeah. fifty. Yeah. So people, unless they're multimillionaires, and that's different, yeah. people are not going to retire until they're. 65 going 70 going 75 depending on where the government keeps moving the age of when the pension kicks in um yeah, yeah as we have aging population so uh i th- i think the jury's still out it's a bit like rock rock stars isn't it yeah. um you shoot if you know 30 years ago you assumed it was something you did when you were a kid and then you got a proper job mm-hmm. but now we have mick jagger and sapul and all these other people and they're still going mm-hmm. um so you know and and there's a lot of musicians and bands that have come back from the 80s and have relaunched themselves yeah. both in the US and the UK because there's money to be had in the live scene so yeah. I, th- I think um, you know, I, I see no reason why game developers would drop out of the industry unless they have become completely stressed what with you know the hours that come in at crunch time yeah. or whether they're not making enough money and just need to change career um, why would you why would you why would you leave the industry if that's what you love doing yeah I mean, that's the main reason why a lot of people stay. Like, is crunching over there a thing? Like, uh, is it bad? Are there labor laws or anything? Any type of protection that game developers have? Uh, um, crunching definitely happens in the UK. Okay. But employers do have to be careful, more careful here than they do in America, because we do have way more uh, employment rules, right. employment tribunals, um, uh, there's way more mechanisms to protect employees. We're a lot more socialist country than you are. The right. end of the, and that's an, an, an naughty word in America. For us, it's just a, a word. I mean, socialism doesn't mean communism. Um, and, and we're more right-wing than Europe, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. And even the t- uh, conservatives who are considered right-wing here, probably, if you stuck them next to, or certainly if you stuck them next to Donald Trump, but even if you stuck them next to a moderate Republican, yeah, he would cons- call them a socialist. Right. Right. We are much more. I mean, if the United Kingdom ever joined the United States of America, having left Europe and needed to be part of something bigger, and became your fifty-third state, is that right? 
You're the Americans. You should just be able to answer that straight. Anyway. That's a Larry question let right me, there. I, let me Google. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to say 50. We'll say 50x state. Um, How many stars do we have? <laughs> anyway, if, if we joined you, we would um, inevitably uh, mean you don't ever get the democratic government because our size of population under your electoral college system would give us, and you, you'd only ever get Democrats because, yeah, it's just the way we are. So, um, so we have a lot more employment rules. However, that doesn't mean that people don't work dumb hours. Right. And if the project has to be done, it has to be done. Um, and there have been some horror stories that have come out and been reported on by Eurogamer. Um, uh, but I think more of those horror stories come out of US and maybe Australian or other studios. Um, in the UK, like I said, I'm sure the crunch times happen. I'm sure if there's game developers listening to this, they could um, attest to how bad it can get. Um, yeah. But uh, I think there's limits to what employers can do, and I think it must be being shunned on more. Yeah. Well, yeah. Like, can you kind of go over like maybe like three big ones that you feel that are different uh, that stands out to you as as far as labor law goes in the UK versus US? Uh, I things think that make employers it, cringe at forcing the maximum number of hours you're okay. meant to be able to work because we've signed up to the what's called the EU. Remember, okay, it's complex. We well, it, it's um, we're part of the European Union, and the uh-huh. European Union is not a state as in the United States of America. You have a federal state, but it's a halfway house. Mm-hmm. So we have legislation and and directives which are Europe wide, and then individual countries or states, then sign up to them or obliged to sign up to them or interpret them in their own way to work within their own local laws. Uh, but I think we're part of the social chapter and it means there's a number, a maximum number of hours people are meant to work. But I think it can be written into the contracts that they can work outside of those uh, things if, if, uh, if both parties sign up to it. Um, but certainly... Uh, I think the biggest difference, as opposed to specific laws, because I'm not an employment law expert, is this. If an employer does act unreasonably to an employee, there are things called tribunals, which are courts. You can take your employer to. um, And if there's no settlement. And they're expensive. They're expensive for employers to go through those. Um, And uh, and they're not just for high-profile sort of in the news type stuff. I mean, regular, I mean, thousands of people go through them every year. Um, so if you feel an employer is victimizing you or is being unfair to you, or you didn't get that promotion or you feel you have to leave because even if you're the one leaving, you can still take them to a tribunal. Cause you can say I was leaving only because they did X, Y, and Z. Oh my God. So, so <laughs> the climate here is that as employers, you, you know, you should be transparent. You should have procedures. I mean, if an employer works by the rules and is transparent and doesn't just, uh, I remember, I, I'm not going to name anything, but I remember that Larry, I think it was you were telling me about a top developer that we both know about who did or said <laughs> something to a friend of yours. That, I mean, that, 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 that would be completely not allowed. Tribunal. <laughs> And, and that would have easily ended up in a tribunal or, yeah. or discipline procedure or court case or whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. So, you know, people have to work with, with showing respect to people. Um, I feel like what, we need a few of those in uh, the U.S. Just a couple of cases. 
<laughs> that well, we so can it's... tap on the whiteboard on <laughs> if anything happens. I think the last big one we had was the, the wives to EA lawsuit. Yeah, and that was like what? Ten it feels like ten years ago. Ten years ago. But yeah, yeah, I mean another one. But you have real lawsuits and it's often that has to be done collectively. But what we have are mechanisms that already exist. You know, people a tribunal isn't people going well it is a, it is a court, but it is a specific form of court that exists to solve many employment issues all the time. I think the problem is you don't have losses. to have these mass collective lawsuits of four thousand people all getting together to better afford the cost of the lawyer, whatever it may be. Yeah. The problem with lawsuits over here is people end up settling way before the wrist of the offender gets slapped. Yeah. And so Yeah, and and, and settlements are sometimes do good. Yeah. I mean, employment tribunals sometimes end up in settlement. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there is a procedure which pu- which pushes settlement before judgment because it's mm-hmm. cheaper for both parties. Mm-hmm. Um, but if they can't reach settlement, then then it goes to tribunal, and then um, a, a judge will make a, a decision for or against the employer. Um, and it's it's just you know it's as simple as that. Right. Uh, so, but generally the. Labor laws here are more stringent than they are in America. Uh, your rights in terms of being laid off and whatnot mm-hmm. are, are much stronger. Um, uh, yeah, so it's a real more socialist country from that perspective. Well, ladies and gentlemen, before we continue on, it is past that time where we go and take a quick commercial break. I know I need something to drink. I don't know about my co-host and my guest. But we'll be right back with more Game Dev Unchained, the podcast. Are you trying to get into the game industry and need some assistance from professionals who actually work in the game industry? Well, please visit GameSchoolOnline.com and reserve a scholar today. Our scholars are currently working professionals who are available weekly to go over assignments, review portfolios, and demo reels whenever you may need. The best way to get a job at any game company is to know someone who already works there. Find a scholar today at www.gameschoolonline.com. And I'm back. Uh, I just finished perfecting my one-handed technique. The the co-hosts and guests <laughs> know what I'm talking about. <laughs> and uh, welcome back to Game Dev Unchained, the podcast with Mr. Steven Gervitz. Hello. So, Steven, you ready to bring it home and give these people some uh, some takeaways? Yes, let's do that. All right. So if I was a budding sound engineer or sound designer... And money was an object. You know how people say money is no object? Well, money is definitely an object. <laughs> um, what are some basic entry-level things that you think a entry-level person getting into your field, I guess, should acquire? Like, what's, what's the, the, the bare minimums for being a, a Foley artist or a sound designer, I guess? Well, I'm going to talk about sound design and music, if that's okay. Okay, that's fine. Okay, so, um, look, everyone uses Pro Tools in the industry. Uh, but Pro Tools now does a free version, I think. Um, but it also does cheaper versions. I mean, like significantly cheaper versions. So if you're doing sound design, I still think Pro Tools is the easiest and fastest thing to work in for editing voice or editing sound effects. It's very easy to to move content around, to muck around with it, not destroy it, to be able to go back to where you were, combine things. Not perfect. But it's really, really, you know, it's it's the fastest thing for that kind of stuff. And if you're going to do voiceover work, it's really, really, really easy to work with. Um, if you're doing music, uh, Logic is really on a Mac is is still the industry standard for composition. Um, there's some other two fair bits of software as well, um, 
But Logic is really quite cheap now, so that's I go for that. If you've got no money at all and you buy a Mac, obviously it comes with GarageBand, and GarageBand shouldn't be poo-pooed. I mean, it lacks a lot of features, mm-hmm. but at the end of the day, it's down to the musical ideas you create. You know, you can get bogged down with features, uh, but with music, maybe this applies to art design and whatnot. Well, it, it certainly it would apply to 2D art design. I don't know about 3D. With 3D features, clearly there's a correlation between what you can do and the features of the software. Um, but drawing a picture is drawing a picture, right? Mm-hmm. And writing a good tune is writing a good tune. Um, and when it comes to sound effects or samples for instruments, Clearly, that you can spend a fortune on buying some really high-quality starter packs, if that makes sense, of sampled instruments or sounds. Um, but with instruments, you can have the best quality sounds, but if you don't know how to use them properly, if you don't understand how flutes or strings play in the real world, mm-hmm. so your intonation, like the way you score the music or you hit your keyboard if you're playing it on a virtual instrument, if you don't learn that, then you can have the best strings and they'll sound really bad but if you just use the default strings in logic but you orchestrate them to suit how they should be played then they'll sound amazing so you can get a lot more out of what people get without something going i need better strings the solution is to spend money and the sound effects again you can combine sounds together you can do a lot with sounds to create a lot of different sounds out of a very small number of sounds Mm -hmm. right just the other day i was creating some impacts and crashes for a car driving game and um it's low budget. We're not going to go and record a crash. We're not, and and I and uh, I didn't exactly have the right crash. And I it's didn't all foolish, foolish money. sounds. Yeah, yeah. We'll just go down to <laughs> boom, boom, for HDMI five casual game. You know, using the Bond set. Um, and um, <laughs> so yeah, we didn't do that. Um, but nor did I go on the internet and start searching because even searching is time and time is money. Nor yeah. did I buy some sounds, but I had some existing stock sounds. Mm-hmm. And then after combining around four or five of them together, we got exactly what we wanted. Mm-hmm. And it's just about being patient and being creative. And sometimes you have to combine sounds together that are not the right sounds. Like, mm-hmm. like you might be combining a shoelace with a fart with whatever to make the sound of a fridge door. Mm-hmm. You sometimes have to think laterally and just spend some time listening to sounds going, I could use a bit of that, I could use a bit of this. Mm-hmm. And and guess what? You're saving money. Mm-hmm. And you're improving your skills anyway. Mm-hmm. So get a Mac. I still think Macs are the best. Mm-hmm. I'm not a Mac fan like I have Apple this and Apple that. Don't have an Apple phone. Um but but the Mac's still the best for audio. Garage band is a great starting place, but Pro Tools is a great software platform and logic is good for composition. So I have a question. Um, so going all the way back, uh, you know, just looking at everything, how you got into the industry, sustaining your career, like if you were able to talk to yourself for when you were interested in thinking about going into it, uh, what's the biggest thing you would say uh, to look out for or be careful of or, you know, be prepared for? I think I was lucky. I went through it with quite eyes wide open, realizing I had to graft. But uh, yeah, I think it would just be to to remind myself well, you're going to have to graft at this. You're going to have to work really hard, mm-hmm. but also to be more aggressive and be more. I, I was never Mister Sociable, mm-hmm. so actually finding contacts, building relationships like with people like Larry, actually didn't come easy to me. It comes a lot easier to me now, mm. right? Wow! But I can't I was, tell the difference. <laughs> you're so sociable now. 
but when I was no, when I was really young, I was quite shy. Um, I I I knew what I wanted to do. I had that drive, as we discussed earlier. But what I didn't always have was the self confidence as to why they should be talking to me. Mm. And I didn't yet get that the sooner you start doing it, the sooner you then can say you do it, and then the next pitch or the next conversation becomes so much easier because you become that which you are and you are that which you are doing if mm. that makes sense mm-hmm. um so i'll go back to this again and yet this again you don't get from college you don't get this from college the this the, the sooner you can start collaborating with people and for free really don't uh, you know when you're 18 when you're 15 when you're 20 when you're 22 don't get bogged down with the big negotiations i mean Get a, get an agreement in principle up front. Larry knows I was like that, so that mm-hmm. way, if there's a you know the last thing you want to do is discuss how to split a million dollars when you've got a million dollars to split, right? Mm-hmm. But the point is, don't get bogged down with all that. Don't try and haggle fees or anything like that. Just build relationships, put your neck out there. Don't worry if you get embarrassed, and get work done. So that mm-hmm. way, you can then say, yeah, I do this. So someone else then eventually comes along and says, I hear you do this. Can you do this for me? And you just go, yeah, because you've done it enough times by now that you know you can do it. Mm-hmm. Be more aggressive in making that happen. That's what I'd say to myself. Mm. So now for the, the music composers out there who are listening to the podcast, looking for great tidbits of information, where do you find yourself drawing inspiration oftentimes? You know, you did talk about your process for creating sounds or unique sound effects, but... Say I'm doing a horror game. Dum, dum, dum. Where do you, Stephen Gervitz, go and say, okay, you know, I'm going to listen to some Hitchcock old Twilight Zones. and or Actually, Hitchcock didn't do Twilight Zones. Excuse me, audience. But you know what I'm saying. Like, where do you, exactly. where do you draw, I guess, your inspiration for horror themes and, you know, music and not sound effects this time? Well, the first thing is you're always collaborating. So you really need to talk to the people you're making a game with. As we were talking about the the few and the the they you know they had a certain sound in their mind I had a certain sound in my mind and me ended up having to compromise okay um, so it is a collaborative process you're not you're, you're making a game is like being in a band mm-hmm. and and people have to realize that and everyone has to give and take and even though the art guy he knows art better than the music guy and the game design guy knows game design better than the art guy at the end of the day. We are banned, so the game design guy has to listen to the art guy, and the music guy has to listen to the game design guy, and so on and so forth. And and not just listen, but take on board. Okay, mm-hmm. that's my thing. Um, I appreciate it with really big development teams that might happen between the section heads, but obviously the the the, the you know the the junior junior art guy might not be invited to mm-hmm. comment on the game design. Okay, <laughs> but I'm sure within the section heads, there's things being passed between or there probably should be um but but in terms of my own personal where do i come from if i was able to operate in a vacuum uh one as a musician you need to consume a lot of music Mm. and a lot of media because obviously a lot of music is in other media so there's no point writing music for games and not playing games or not listening to music or not watching films because none of us create from scratch let's be honest over wonderful thing we all use the word create but it's, it's the wrong word. Mm-hmm. All we're ever doing is is moving on that which we've experienced before and regurgitating it and putting a little spin on it and evolving it slightly more forward. All right? All right. Um, and so how can you do that if you work in a vacuum? 
So yeah, I would be listening to Hitchcock. I'd be listening to Bernard Turman, the composer. I'd be listening to other bits and bobs. I'd be looking at what other people have done in other games. Not because I want to copy it, but because let's be honest, the the audience will have some common reference points. That's why when you watch a horror film, you hear strings done in a certain way or whatever, because they're cues. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, there was someone who did it for the first time, and that they were the person who moved that creative process on a little bit, but now they've become standard cues. Mm. That doesn't mean I shouldn't try to do something new, but I shouldn't try and do something only new. Mm. There has mm. to be some cues that people can understand the language of the medium. Mm. Um, so I'll be doing a mixture of just talking to my colleagues, asking them for their reference points, working off my own reference points, and then... Um, you know, if we're doing a game, I want to see the concept art. I want to see the environments. I want to try and put whatever it is I'm doing, even if I'm just tinkling on a piano with some basic ideas. I want to do it whilst the game's running in the background. And I just kind of, you know, I need to touch and feel it and say, is this is this helping to tell the story or is it taking me in the wrong direction? Mm-hmm. Man, this is great. I actually feel like I'm a sound designer now. Like, I want to go and... <laughs> you know, record some doors opening and some, some shoelaces untying and come up with some great sounds. <laughs> You've got a cat there, Larry. Why don't you just hold it by the tail and swing it around? you get some great <laughs> That See, I can swing the cat around and that would create audio of terrible female singing, right? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Uh, podcasters, listeners, I would never hurt an animal, especially not a cat. <laughs> Only in jest. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, in sound design in games, you do often hear the same sound. Um, it's very interesting. So I think it's the same sound. I can't be sure. I have, a, I did have a, a guy from Ubisoft confirm to me it was. But you know the um, the famous sound of the eagle in all the Assassin's Creed games. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yes, yeah, I'm sure it's in Red Dead Redemption. You hear it bloody everywhere. Yeah. Uh-huh. You hear the. You hear that? There are some stock sounds that everyone seems to use. Yeah. I don't know if that's because there's only one person in the world who ever managed to capture the sound of an eagle properly. Mm. I've never had to use the sound of an eagle, so I've never really gone through it. But you do still hear certain sounds, and that sometimes annoys me because it actually takes me out of the game. Yeah, Because I start, I start hearing the process. I start hearing the file, the file name. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like you must see the same with 3D scene. You know, obviously, a lot of designers are creating from scratch, but a lot of people are using existing models or whatever it may be. And sometimes you must brand and you must see a game and go, oh, I, I recognize that geometry. <laughs> I've seen that before elsewhere. Hey. They've just reused that. Okay. Yeah. It's called I mean, the Unity that's... Store. <laughs> Sorry? It's called the Unity Asset Store. <laughs> yeah, the Unity Asset Store. I mean, you know, for all I know, the COD games share a lot of. You know, share the same stuff maybe yeah exactly um well they get in trouble for that so yeah i don't think you're going to be seeing that practice very much anymore anymore yeah so yeah but you know traditionally there may have been god forbid a tiny bit of overlap um so and you know and there's nothing wrong with that i remember when i was a kid uh there were games on 8-bit machines and 16-bit machines by a british company called ocean mm-hmm. who were very successful and they clearly had an engine going and so you'd have games like robocop and batman and whatnot and i'm sure they shared some of the same 2dr some of the baddies and whatnot because it allowed them to pump them out quicker there's nothing wrong with that but as a creator it annoys me because you see the process behind the game and sometimes okay. that takes me out of the game mm. uh, well so uh... Stephen, Mr. Gravitz, it is one hour into the podcast, and you may not be familiar with this part, but we always turn over the microphone to our special guest to thank them for sticking with us for this much time and to (laughs) 
basically to promote, shout out, talk about any one specific thing that they would like with our entire audience. And wow. Yeah, so you've got 100 people listening <laughs> right now <laughs> who are about to go check out whatever link or look up whatever project or whatever thing you're about to promote right now. The audience and microphone is yours. That's very kind of you. Well, I, I, well, I tell you what, I'll make, I'll, I'll do two shoot out, shout outs, shoot outs. Um, I'll do two shout outs, <laughs> but one is just like an offer to your audience. Okay. Okay. Um, one is go check out the few. The few is that game we were discussing, the Battle of Britain game. It's on Steam. It's on, it's on for Mac and PC. It's also on the Mac Store. We are working on a sequel, and we do want to move it to tablet, where I think it will actually do really well. All right. Um, so go check out The Few, F-E-W. Um, and the other thing is, I don't mind Larry putting, um, uh, I'll give it to him, um, uh, uh, our sort of, our studio's uh, email address, which is admin at 2002studios.com. I don't mind that getting out there. Well, it's in the public <laughs> domain anyway. It's on our website. Um, and if there are people out there making some interesting games, even if they don't have a budget, but they think they're half decent and they would like to see what we could do with it. I don't mind. Larry knows how I work. I often work on what I call risk share. You share the risk, you share the rewards. Um, and uh, I don't mind people coming and reaching out to us to, to work with us. Because I don't care if I'm dealing with an established person or an unknown. If the idea is good and if the person seems credible, like it will get finished and they'll follow through with it, I'm happy to be part of that journey because it might generate revenue. It might not generate revenue. But even if it doesn't generate revenue, it might lead to the next thing that does. Mm-hmm. So I'll put that out there that I'm always happy to work with people, happy for people to talk to us and contact us. And, um, and, you know, and that's how we continue to grow in the industry. And I apologize if your email gets bombarded with offers. By all 100 people. By all 100 people. By all 100. Well, you know what? Think about those 100 people who then tell 100 people. About you. Yeah, see. That would be a good problem to solve. That's Larry's mom telling his uh, aunt. (laughs) (laughs) It'll be be my pleasure to deal with that problem. Oh, Lord. But well, that's how it's work. You know, that's my view. That's how it has to work is people have to be willing to collaborate. Um, they have to be willing to take risks and get burnt, but then take another risk. Uh, and uh, that's that's how the industry moves on. Um, when it gets very protective, whether on an individual level or corporate level, that's when it starts to come a bit stagnant. Mm-hmm. And that's, oh. you know. And yeah, I like the film industry where you've got you know, really, everyone's taking huge gambles, but on movies where the risk is low, like your Avengers right. or your Star Wars. Uh, and then everything else by the wayside, they don't really know what to do with. I th- You know, the game industry does have many different delivery platforms. Right. Um, and it allows people to create content in many different ways, with different budgets. And, and the experimentation should be part of the game, game you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's that's what's exciting. So, right. so then, anyway, right there, the end. They're my two things. Go check out the few, and if people want to talk to us and see if they want to work with us, doesn't mean we'll say yes, but they should feel free to, and then we'll have that conversation. And that's that, really. But I wish everyone a lot of luck. Well, 
since I'm the one that's on the microphone talking right now, I'm going to be the first one to run out the door. Larry Charles, good night. Hey, good night, everybody. And good night and good morning. Thank you very much for having me. Always a pleasure, Steve.